Chapter Six, Part Two of Twenty Years of the Republic, eighteen eighty five to nineteen hundred five, by Harry Thurston Peck. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Election of eighteen ninety two, Part Two. It may be asked why the discontented did not flock to the Democratic Party and use it as an instrument for turning out the Republicans who were held to be primarily responsible for existing conditions the reason was that both of the old parties were now almost equally distrusted both were regarded as being under the control of the money power during mr cleveland's administration from eighteen eighty five to eighteen eighty nine it had been made clear that the trusts were quite as influential in democratic as in republican politics mr h b payne for whom the standard oil company had bought the ohio legislature was ostensibly a democrat it was charged also that secretary whitney mr cleveland's closest adviser was dominated by the same sinister influence senator hoar had asked is it the standard oil company represented in the cabinet at this moment note thirteen page two seventy and the question had rasped the nerves of the entire nation therefore these new factions that were springing up in the west and in the south felt that a clean sweep must be made and that both of the old parties must be driven out seceding republicans in the west declared themselves to be reverting to the earlier republicanism of lincoln while in the south those who had once been democrats professed to be reviving the democracy of jefferson all of them wished to get back to simplicity honesty and economy in government to secure a fair field for all to resist commercialism to oppose the money power and the general corruption and cowardice of the old parties party conventions and organizations were now mere machines for winning elections and keeping control of the offices they were unscrupulous oligarchies controlled by the rich the few astute and wealthy managers and magnates called businessmen controlling the party managers as their henchmen set things up in private conferences while the masses were being fooled and manipulated like voting herds then the business magnates who dictated the nomination of the candidates and furnished the sinews of war for the campaign were of course to conduct the government and equally of course the laws were to be made and administered in such a way as to take good care of these managers business interests it was felt that if any president or senator or congressman began to urge honestly and effectively that the great mine owners or railroads or trust combinations the moneyed forces that controlled the money land and transportation of the people should be actually brought face to face with the enforcement of just and equal laws then some silent but powerful influence within the parties would retire such public servants to private life note fourteen page two seventy one the storm centre of this third party agitation was the state of kansas in september the farmers alliance and the knights of labor assembled in convention there and nominated a full state ticket and also candidates for congress in the october elections this ticket was elected and out of the seven congressmen allotted to kansas the new party elected five while the state legislature sent to the senate a country editor mr william alfred pfeffer who had been a leader in the movement in the following year a general fusion took place of the different factions representing both the industrial and agricultural interests now uniting for the first time as a definite political party under the name of people's party or populists their first national convention was held at cincinnati in may eighteen ninety one and it drew up a platform which demanded the free and unlimited coinage of silver the issue of paper money which should be loaned to the people at not more than two per cent per annum on the security of non-perishable agricultural products the national ownership of railroads telegraphs telephones and steamship lines a graduated income tax 
and the election of united states senators by popular vote note fifteen page two seventy two it was the financial part of this platform that was most immediately important the demand for the free coinage of silver represented a general belief which had permeated the minds of the western people they had come to entertain what is known as the quantitative theory of money believing that an increased supply of money would raise the prices of farm products it was a matter of indifference to them how this increase of money was to be effected whether by the issue of irredeemable greenbacks or by the unlimited coinage of silver they would have preferred if left to themselves to substitute paper money for a metallic currency of any sort but here came in another influence which for some time past had been at work the price of silver as compared with that of gold had for a long time while been steadily falling in consequence the great mine owners of nevada colorado and other western states found the production of silver ceasing to be profitable they had therefore as early as eighteen seventy seven secured the passage of the bland silver law directing the government to purchase silver bullion and to coin each month not less than two million or more than four million silver dollars note sixteen page two seventy two in eighteen ninety this act had been repealed and in place of it the so-called sherman silver law had been enacted directing the government to purchase every month four million five hundred thousand ounces of silver and to issue it against legal tender notes redeemable on demand in coin either gold or silver at the discretion of the secretary of the treasury note seventeen page two seventy three these two laws although afterwards attacked by the republicans involved a logical application of the doctrine of protection silver was an american product and the mine owners as representing an american industry demanded legislation which should make their industry a profitable one as the tariff could not affect this it was accomplished by forcing the government to provide an artificial market for the product of the silver mines the sherman law was passed in the hope of propitiating the adherents of silver in the west but it failed entirely of its object it did not go far enough to please the silver men while it alarmed the conservative financiers what the populists now desired was to make the coinage of silver an unlimited one so as to render money plentiful and cheap to drive gold out of circulation and thus to secure artificially a general increase in the values of agricultural products the silver propaganda was received with great enthusiasm in the west meetings were held in thousands of country schoolhouses to hear this new gospel of prosperity proclaimed by perfervid orators the movement threatened to demoralize both of the old parties for it was felt that the silver vote would be able at the next election to turn the scale in favor of whatsoever candidate should show himself to be most truly a friend of silver it was while this agitation was at its height that the reform club in new york city note eighteen page two seventy four held a meeting to voice the opposition of new york business men to the free coinage of silver an invitation to be present was sent to mr cleveland when this fact became known many of his friends urged him to stay away and to keep to himself his opinions on the silver question they knew that he was inflexibly opposed to any increased silver coinage his messages to congress had shown this very plainly but they pointed out to him that by keeping silence he might let it be supposed that he had changed his mind or that at least he was willing to approve a compromise to offend the silver men was they said to throw away his chances for the presidency he could not possibly receive a nomination if it were known that he was not a friend of silver the west would be solidly against him 
it was a time to temporize and to exercise a little diplomacy both for his own sake and for the welfare of his party mr cleveland listened to this talk without saying very much his engagements made it impossible for him to attend the reform club meeting but he wrote a letter to the chairman which on the following morning appeared in every newspaper throughout the united states in it he said it surely cannot be necessary for me to make a formal expression of my agreement with those who believe that the greatest peril would be invited by the adoption of the scheme for the unlimited coinage of silver at our mints and in the last sentence of his letter he spoke of the dangerous and reckless experiment of free unlimited and independent silver coinage note nineteen page two seventy four these bold uncompromising words created an immense sensation mr cleveland's enemies read them with exultation cleveland was out of the race at last he had once more played the fool and made himself a political impossibility out of sheer pig-headedness at last he was in reality a dead one so thought the cynical mr dana of the sun and so thought all the leading democrats who had been nourishing presidential ambitions of their own admirers of the ex-president admired him more than ever yet they could not repress a feeling of regret that he had spoken out so freely and as it seemed to them so unnecessarily for they too viewed this reform club letter as putting an end to the movement for his re-election such was in fact mr cleveland's own belief yet in his heart there lurked no shadow of regret an intimate friend who met him on the day after the letter had been published spoke to him ruefully about the matter mr cleveland's only answer was to throw out both his arms with the gesture of one who casts away a heavy burden oof said he and then with a gleeful look at his friend's troubled face he went on to talk about his summer plans yet neither his enemies nor his friends nor he himself had accurately gauged the effect of this act of defiant frankness beyond the haunts of the scheming politicians who managed caucuses and pack conventions the pregnant sentences of that letter were read with an electric thrill of joyful recognition here at last was a man one who knew his own mind and was not afraid to speak it one who would not trim and shuffle to win votes one who would kick aside a nomination for the presidency rather than wear a muzzle even for a moment a shrewd english observer was once asked to explain the secret of lord palmerston's unbounded popularity why said he what the nation likes in palmerston is his you be damnedness it was something of the same quality in mr cleveland that caused the american people at this moment to let their hearts go out to him for the american people admire courage in their public men in exact proportion to the infrequency with which they have a chance to see it instantly from having been merely a logical candidate for the presidency mr cleveland became the inevitable candidate the stampede of democrats to the ranks of the populace was checked at once all through the west the party lines were closed up solidly once more while in the east conservative men republicans and democrats alike rejoiced over the growing influence of this dominant personality it was only among a small coterie of professional politicians that the new aspect of affairs produced a feeling of anger and consternation before the appearance of the reform club letter there had been several aspirants whose chances for the next democratic nomination were seriously considered one was mr horace boys of iowa an earnest able leader with convictions and a reputation for intelligence and integrity he had fought a hard fight on the tariff issue ever since mr cleveland's message of eighteen eighty seven had brought that question to the forefront and in the campaign which followed the passage of the mckinley bill he had wiped out the vast republican majority in iowa and had been elected governor 
he was a man of the people in the best sense of the term representing new issues and new blood and he had always been consistently a cleveland democrat mr isaac pusey gray of indiana was an old-school party leader not conspicuous for his mental attainments but popular in his own state of which he had been governor it was thought that he could carry indiana and he had the negative qualification of having made no important enemies in the party still another receptive candidate was mr adlai e stevenson of illinois who had been assistant postmaster-general in mr cleveland's administration his partisanship while holding that office note twenty page two seventy seven had highly commended him to the petty spoilsmen of the democracy and they pictured to themselves with rare enthusiasm the liberal fashion in which if elected president he would deal out offices to faithful henchmen in the background alertly watching every opportunity was senator arthur p gorman of maryland senator gorman was one of the most astute and subtle of all the democratic leaders of irish descent and humble origin he had as a boy been a page in the senate chamber in after years with a truly celtic genius for political intrigue he had made himself master of the party organization in his own state and an important personage in the national councils smooth bland and insinuating he resembled both in appearance and in manner a typical italian ecclesiastic and his adroitness and inscrutability fully carried out the same resemblance mr gorman had kept on good terms with mr cleveland during the latter's presidency for his sake the administration had incurred the odium of retaining mr eugene higgins in office note twenty one page two seventy seven against the protest of the maryland civil service reformers and had given aid and comfort to mr gorman in his local party fights senator gorman however was always at heart absorbed in his own ambitions he had many private interests and personal associations not known to the world at large he spun webs of exceeding fineness that were invisible even to his nearest friends and while he was all things to all men oily of speech and propitiatory in manner he nourished ambitions for which he would sacrifice unsparingly whatsoever person interfered with them the effect of mr cleveland's outspoken letter on the silver question had been to eliminate these four would-be rivals from immediate consideration there still remained however one who was rightly regarded by the cleveland democrats as a very formidable obstacle in the way of their candidate's success this was mr david b hill who had been chosen democratic governor of new york in eighteen eighty eight receiving for that office some eighteen thousand votes more than were given to mr cleveland at the same election note twenty two page two seventy eight governor hill now stood forth conspicuously as the only person who could possibly wrest the next democratic nomination from mr cleveland and therefore around him there rallied all who represented machine politics hatred of reform and the worship of the great god expediency together with such as entertained a personal dislike for the only democrat who had been inaugurated president since eighteen fifty seven mr hill was a lawyer who had attained to his prominent position by the most meticulous attention to the minutiae of new york politics his private life was as blameless as his public record was vulnerable he had no personal vices even of the minor sort he neither smoked nor drank to the society of women he was utterly indifferent he cared nothing for money and earned a moderate income by hard professional labor his one joy in life was found in political strategy and intrigue to which his heart and mind and soul were unstintedly and absolutely given over great questions of public policy he wasted no reflection he seemed to have had at this time no serious convictions on such national issues as the tariff finance or foreign relations it was the machinery of politics that absorbed his whole attention 
the manipulation of primaries the arrangement of slates the elaboration of deals the word-juggling of party platforms the carrying of elections he knew the pettiest details of new york state politics by heart nothing was minute enough to escape his microscopic eye he mistook in fact political myopia for statesmanship and the march of great events bewildered him but in his own sphere he was unsurpassed as a wily patient and hitherto successful plotter a consummate artist in intrigue during his two terms as governor mr hill had devoted all his powers to building up an organization in new york state which should have the efficiency of an absolutely flawless machine and he had succeeded to a marvellous degree every local leader was a partisan of mr hill taking orders from him alone and executing them implicitly an alliance with tammany hall gave him support of that well-drilled and disciplined organization in short mr hill was now absolute master of the new york political engine and this fact gave him an undoubted claim upon the attention of the democratic party throughout the nation mr hill's friends said with an air of finality hill carried new york state in eighteen eighty eight cleveland lost it you can't win without new york hill is the man who can surely give you new york's thirty-six electoral votes this boast however was heard by many democrats with the deepest anger and resentment they said yes cleveland lost new york and hill carried it but why because hill sold out cleveland and made us lose the presidency in order that he might gain the governorship do you think that we have forgotten this and that we are going to give the highest honors of the party to the man who openly betrayed it but mr hill cared little for mere talk he set about giving the party and the country an object lesson of his grip upon new york he remarked to a friend of his presidential nominations are not handed out on silver salvers in these days in january eighteen ninety two the democratic national committee issued a call for the convention of the party to be held in chicago on june twenty first within a few days on january twenty fifth after this call had been promulgated the new york state committee at mr hill's dictation summoned a state convention to meet in albany on february twenty second for the purpose of choosing new york's delegates to chicago the democrats of new york were startled never had a state convention been called so early four full months before the national convention it was clear that mr hill intended to steal a march upon the cleveland men to pack the state convention and to secure for himself the delegates from new york a burst of indignation and of angry protest came from every quarter against the attempt to force a snap judgment from a snap convention but the hill machine worked smoothly and began at once to grind out delegates to albany democrats friendly to mr cleveland refused to take any part in the district caucuses and so a solid body of snappers as they were called poured into albany on the twenty second to do the bidding of their master the convention met organized and finished its entire business in two hours and a half only three speeches were made all carefully revised beforehand mr cleveland's name was not so much as mentioned a delegation to chicago was selected pledged to mr hill who was then summoned from the delavan house where in tweed's old headquarters he had been waiting for his followers to do their work he spoke briefly and in a perfunctory sort of way and the gathering then adjourned the only spontaneous applause which had been heard there on that day was given to mr richard croker the new head of tammany hall once more then mr cleveland was thought to be out of the running his own state had apparently declared against him and no candidate had ever received a nomination for the presidency without the support of his home delegation 
whether mr hill should win or not he seemed to have it in his power to defeat his quiescent rival or failing that to give the nomination to any one with whom he could make the best political bargain the cleveland men in new york called a convention of their own alleging that the gathering at albany had not been truly representative these anti-snappers chose a cleveland delegation for chicago though there was practically no chance of its securing recognition there note twenty three page two eighty one for the moment the star of mr hale was undoubtedly in the ascendant in the meantime the republicans though outwardly harmonious were on the verge of serious dissension president harrison's administration had on the whole been satisfactory to the masses of his party but the president himself had not been able to inspire any marked devotion to his own person every one admitted his integrity his good judgment and his ability he had gained the respect even of his opponents nowhere however was there the slightest enthusiasm for him or for his administration the feeling of the republican managers toward the president was not so tame a one as that of the rank and file it had in fact become one of positive and intense dislike quite typical was the changed attitude of two very conspicuous leaders mr thomas c platt of new york and senator matthew stanley key of pennsylvania mr platt had at the beginning of president harrison's term expected to receive either a cabinet office or some other high appointment it was he who as head of the republican state organization in eighteen eighty eight had presumably arranged the bargain with the hill democrats by which hill had been chosen governor while the electoral votes of new york were cast for harrison mr platt however had been thwarted in his hope he had received no appointment to office though a certain amount of federal patronage had been placed at his disposal mr platt was a secretive silent sort of person and he accepted what was given him he was not however satisfied and he felt that he had been treated with ingratitude furthermore the president showed no great liking for his company nor did he receive mr platt's advice with any perceptible cordiality therefore mr platt in his subterranean fashion set himself to undermine president harrison with the party as a whole the case of mr key was somewhat different in his private life this man had many attractive qualities he was genial and sympathetic in manner and was always doing little acts of spontaneous courtesy to those about him he had a scholar's tastes and an elzevir horace was his constant companion but in his public career he was one of the most depressing illustrations of triumphant baseness in all american political history he perpetuated in pennsylvania the corrupt traditions of simon cameron who had been forced to leave president lincoln's first cabinet because he had used the war department's funds in private speculations key was a man without honor without principle and without shame he began his political life by the betrayal of his friends for a money bribe and this first act of his career was typical of all the rest his audacity however and his skill in appealing to the lowest motives of the men about him had given him almost absolute control of the republican party in pennsylvania his only rival being another able boss one chris mcgee key had at first secured a share of president harrison's favor and was rather ostentatiously his supporter but in eighteen ninety something happened which affected the president very deeply in that year mr h c lee a very eminent and influential citizen of philadelphia published certain charges against senator key which if true made it clear that key's proper place was not in the senates of the united states but in the penitentiary mr lee declared and his assertion was corroborated by a vast amount of testimony that key while secretary of state for pennsylvania had misappropriated the sum of two hundred sixty thousand dollars which he had lost in speculation 
and that while state treasurer he had used four hundred thousand of the public funds in stock gambling which amount was subsequently replaced these charges were repeated in the house of representatives by mr r p kennedy of ohio but by a party vote the republican majority refused to let mr kennedy's speech appear upon the record key with his wonted shamelessness allowed the charges to go unanswered and though they were published all over the country he remained silent with regard to them the immediate result was an overwhelming democratic victory in pennsylvania in that year and the election of mr robert e pattison as governor that key was guilty of common theft was accepted as a fact not merely by the people at large but by the president whose sturdy honesty made him shrink from all association with a felon even though that felon had escaped unwhipped of justice key's anger was extreme in private he accused mr harrison of profiting by his services and then repudiating him under fire there were many other malcontents whom mr harrison had either knowingly or unknowingly offended some by his cold unsympathetic manner others by his refusal to appoint them to office all these men flocked to platt and key as natural leaders and plotted with them to prevent the president's renomination it was plain enough that under ordinary circumstances the party was bound to make mr harrison its candidate a second time not to do so would be to declare that his administration had been a failure and thus to stultify republican professions but if for him there could be substituted a still more eminent leader one of unquestioned supremacy and of unchallenged claims then this action would not necessarily put the party upon the defensive that mr blaine was such a leader could not be disputed and so the republican opponents of president harrison begged the great secretary for permission to use his name mr blaine's position was a very delicate one he had become almost as unfriendly to the president as had messrs key and platt though for very different reasons his personal and official intercourse with mr harrison had grown more and more distasteful to him the two men were temperamentally antipathetic blaine ardent impulsive abounding in original ideas a man of imagination harrison cold sluggish matter-of-fact inhospitable to suggestion from the beginning the seeds of an estrangement were sown by the refusal of the president to appoint mr blaine's son walker to be assistant secretary of state this refusal constituted a personal a family grievance note twenty four page two eighty five and other causes of a gradual alienation were presently not wanting during the chilean crisis the divergent views of the two had strained their relations nearly to the breaking point at one of the cabinet meetings mr blaine's excited opposition to the president's opinions became so violent as to induce an attack of vertigo and an illness of several days not from love of his chief therefore did the secretary of state reject the advances of key and the anti-harrison leaders but because of the fact that mr harrison was indeed his chief political etiquette and even common decency forbade a member of the cabinet to intrigue against the president who had appointed him and of whom he was the official adviser but urged the plotters why not resign the cabinet office and announce frankly that you are a candidate then another and an even stronger reason became known mr blaine in very truth was sick of party strife for thirty years he had toiled and fought he had received high honours even though he had failed of his supreme ambition but now he was weary of it all the noise the turmoil the intrigues and the lying the seething mass of mean ambitions the bold-eyed greed the insolence of vulgar curiosity the steam of sweating mobs and all for what 
mr blaine reviewed it with the sense of true perspective which comes to men with years and in his very soul he loathed the thought of dragging once again his weary limbs down into that reeking roaring hell of all the evil passions his strength was spent though still apparently in perfect health there was lurking somewhere in his system an obscure disorder that was draining his vitality his chosen biographer tells us that he had become a hypochondriac given to morbid brooding over his condition and to the use of many drugs nothing not even the presidency seemed any longer worth his while and so he wrote an open letter declaring that he would not under any circumstances consent to be a candidate key and the other plotters therefore turned away from mr blaine and shaped their plans to give the nomination to ex-speaker reed who had also become estranged from president harrison the week sped on the republican convention at minneapolis had been summoned for the seventh of june on june fourth three days before the convention met the country was amazed to learn that mr blaine had written a curt note to the president resigning the secretaryship of state and asking that his resignation take effect at once note twenty five page two eighty six intense excitement ran through the ranks of the republicans what was the meaning of this sudden act had mr blaine's health really broken down had he quarrelled with the president it was felt that no matter what the ultimate cause might be the time chosen for the resignation made it an act of obvious unfriendliness to mr harrison senator key sought to rouse the old-time blaine enthusiasm among the delegates but the effort was in vain some believed that their former hero's health was now completely shattered others resented the confusion and bewilderment caused by the letter of resignation mr blaine is playing fast and loose with us he will ruin himself by his duplicity said mr depew until then his devoted admirer the plumed knight now carries a broken lance said mr new of indiana the anti-harrison leaders came to the convention with divided counsels the harrison forces were compact and confident the former fought for delay in order to form new combinations and for three days the sessions were devoted to the platform and to trivial details the reed movement did not appeal to very many and the delegates from mr reed's own section failed to stand by him greatly to the disgust of several of his ardent friends mr then governor mckinley of ohio had been made permanent president of the convention and the enthusiasm which his appearance called forth led the opponents of mr harrison to boom the high tariff advocate though soon they returned once more to mr blaine finally on june ninth in the midst of the flurry a vote upon the admission of a contesting delegation afforded a fair trial of the relative strength of the two factions the blaine men controlled four hundred twenty three delegates the harrison men four hundred sixty three instantly there was a break in the ranks of the opposition it was plain that harrison must win all the time servers at once flocked to him on the following day after the usual speech-making mr harrison who had been put in nomination by mr depew was chosen on the first ballot with five hundred thirty five votes or eighty-two more than were required mr blaine received one hundred eighty-two votes and governor mckinley precisely the same number on the following day mr whitelaw reed the editor of the new york tribune was nominated for the vice-presidency when mr blaine learned of what had happened he wrote an open letter urging his friends with all the loyalty of a veteran to support the minneapolis ticket but mrs blaine remarked in the presence of a large gathering i am sick and tired of the whole thing it was in truth upon mrs blaine that the responsibility of this rather pitiable denouement rested 
no authorized explanation of mr blaine's sudden retirement from the cabinet has ever been put forth yet it was perfectly well known to many at the time that this step so ill-advised and so contrary to mr blaine's own judgment was taken because of his wife's insistence mrs blaine was a very masterful high-spirited woman unblessed with tact and far too prone to interfere with her husband's political concerns more than once in his career this interference had caused him great embarrassment though matters had always been arranged in such a way as to avoid anything like an overt esclandre but when mr blaine entered president harrison's cabinet his political difficulties were heightened by domestic complications almost at the outset a coolness arose between the wife of the secretary of state and the wife of the president and this coolness increased until it became at last a positive antipathy mrs blaine was far too conscious of the fact that her husband might have been elected president in place of mr harrison had he chosen to accept the nomination in eighteen eighty eight and she let this consciousness be felt in many of the irritating little ways which feminine ingenuity so easily devises mrs harrison not unnaturally resented this with a result that can be imagined when therefore mr blaine was urged to let his name be used in opposition to the president mrs blaine became an active ally of the anti-harrison politicians for a long time she was unsuccessful but age and illness had sapped her husband's power of will and had perhaps obscured his judgment so that finally he yielded to incessant domestic pressure and took the step which resulted so disastrously from that moment his political career was ended he retired to his home in maine and after a lingering illness died early in the following year note twenty six page two eighty nine there is something infinitely pathetic in a survey of mr blaine's remarkable career with so many qualities with such high ambitions and such splendid opportunities he never reached the goal upon which his gaze had been continually fixed and toward which he had struggled with such dauntless hope and energy it is not too much to say of him that for resourcefulness and for that sort of imagination which enters into constructive statesmanship he had had no equal since the days of jefferson he possessed every gift that goes with supreme leadership save only one he lacked that higher moral sense without which in the last and crucial test a statesman's strength is turned to weakness as was said of him at the time he reflected accurately the influences that were in the ascendant throughout the civil war amid whose storm and stress his political character had been moulded the ardent patriotism the fiery courage the intense devotion to a cause which made that period memorable were his but through all those years he had seen about him the play of meaner motives and the inevitable jobbery and corruption which are the accompaniment of war and long familiarity with these had blunted a naturally fine sense of honour and had led him to set expediency sometimes in the place of right the most serious charges brought against him were undoubtedly untrue but he had so acted as to justify them in the minds of millions of his countrymen and he was forced to pay the penalty of his indiscretion yet whatever were his faults he was a very great american and when he bade farewell to public life even his political opponents thought of him with something more than kindness at a democratic mass meeting held at chicago in the campaign which followed a speaker chanced to mention mr blaine at once the great audience sprang to its feet and thundered forth its uncontrollable applause when it subsided the speaker said blaine seems to have more friends here than he had at minneapolis and a voice replied amid a second tempest of applause we were all his friends End of chapter 6, part 2